making your way back to your seats, and uh, as you do, grab your Bibles. Uh, this week has been an interesting week. We were planning on, I was planning on tackling uh, three names of God this week, and doing so, we were going to do, as the bulletin says, uh, we were going to do Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, and Jehovah Shalom. And uh, it, was, it was Tuesday when uh, Damien and I, we meet on, uh, early on Monday at like 6.30 in the morning. And uh, so it was Tuesday, we had already kind of had our Monday morning conversation, and I was getting a closing song in, and, uh, and so I put two in, and I said, I don't really know where I'm going to go at the end of the sermon yet. Um, and so here are two possible destinations for us, and I'm leaning towards this one. Um, and then on Wednesday, I began leaning towards the other one, and uh, I think uh, on, e on Wednesday, I emailed him, and I said, okay, I really don't know where I'm going to go, um, so practice both tonight, and then uh, you just make the call on Sunday morning. Like, that's where I was Wednesday morning, and then Thursday morning rolled around, um, and having talked with Carrie on Wednesday night, I said, look, I, I, I feel like... I've got three sermons here. And she goes, well, we just don't need all the detail. Like, I don't know if I can do that. And so Thursday morning rolls around, and I'm trying to kind of get towards the end of the prep work and the, the heavy lifting. And I realize that, no, I actually do have three sermons, and we're just going to do three weeks. Um, so one morning has, has blossomed into three. And then on Thursday afternoon, I sent Damien another email, and I said, entirely new closing song. Here's what we're going to do. Do you know this one? And it's one we didn't even have in our system. So can virtually guarantee you that in this room, none of us have sung the closing song for the last six years. Um, but it was written in the 70s. So I think we got a good shot of it actually just feeling familiar. Um, and it, it's not a difficult song by any means. But what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take care of and try to unpack Jehovah or Yahweh Shalom. And uh, the bulletin got printed before I made that final call, and it was, it was Thursday, kind of late morning, that uh, I, I hollered at Joyce, and I was like, hey, Joyce, did you already print the bulletin? And she's like, yep, didn't say anything more. And then John Fitz rolls in, and I let him know that the, the moniker outside, the marquee, is not going to need to get adjusted the same way. And Joyce comes tramping in. She goes, you didn't tell me you changed the names of the sermon. I was like, you already printed the bulletin. Like, I didn't need to tell you. I was going to tell you next week. I didn't need to tell you today. And so uh, that's why the bulletin's the way it is. So next week, we're going to unpack Jehovah Nisi. Um, and then the third one, we're going to unpack Jehovah Jireh. Um, and we're just gonna we're gonna compress a few things as we go forward in the year. But Jehovah Shalom, Shalom's a name that we know. It's a word that's not uncommon in our part of the world um, because there's a school by that name in our county. Uh, the school Shalom. It means peace. 
And uh, it's just a word that gets used and is commonly used in that way. And where we see the name Jehovah Shalom show up is in Judges 11. Excuse me, Judges 6, verse 11. And what we're trying to do throughout this series on the names of God is we're trying to understand the character of God. Trying to understand who God is. We're trying to get our minds wrapped around this God of the Bible who has revealed himself to us in his word, has told us things about himself that he wants us to know. Now, I am entirely convinced that God has not told us everything there is to know, but he has told us what he wants us to know. And we get to spend our lives trying to unpack it and try to understand it and try to understand him. And we're not ever going to do it completely. But we're trying to understand the character of God. We're trying to see how the names of God just reveal action. Trying to see what God God did. What he does comes out of his character. It's a way to understand more of who he is. And then lastly, as we're trying to unpack these variety of names, we're trying to understand how... The names of God are refuge and power for those who trust in him. They're a place of security. The scriptures use the word of strong towers, of refuge, of of shields, of fortresses. There's a place of security. There's strongholds available. And there's power. There's strength. And we learn about what God intends to do, how he intends to strengthen us, how he intends to give us courage and power and strength to follow him as we study his names. And so as we're unpacking Yahweh Shalom, I want to have that in mind that we can be thinking about what it is that God's revealed to us about his character, what it is that God reveals to us about his actions, and what it is that God reveals to us regarding his Ability to be our stronghold and our strength. And as we unpack Yahweh Shalom, we're going to spend a little bit of time in Judges, verse 11 through 24 of chapter 6. And then we're going to make that jump to the New Testament and spend a little bit more of our time there. Just unpacking how the God of peace today works peace in our lives. And I want to spend a good chunk of our time just thinking through what that looks like and what that means. So before we go any further, let's pray, and then we'll hop into Judges 6. We'll take a peek at Gideon's story, at least the beginning part of it, and then try to understand things from there. Would you join me? Father God, we ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and minds that understand That as we try to get our minds wrapped around who you are, God, we recognize that we're not ever going to do it completely. We're not ever going to do it perfectly. That you as creator and infinite will never be fully understood by the finite creatures that you've made. But God, you've given us intellect. You've given us minds, you've given us souls, you, you communicate to us in ways that we can understand, in ways that we can observe, in ways that we can learn. And as we open your word, as we try to understand, as we try to observe, as we try to see, we pray that you would 
be gracious to us and your spirit would come and make sense of the things that you have said. God, we believe that you have spoken and that it's in our best interest to draw near and listen. And so God, help us to draw near. To draw near in faith that you will meet us as we do. And draw near in humility. That we would not come with pride and arrogance, but humble hearts. And God, we pray and ask that you'd change us. That you'd cause us this morning to look and act and think more like Jesus. And we pray this in his good name. Amen. Well, Judges chapter 6, verses 11 to 24, gives us the account of the beginning part of Gideon's ministry, of his call to ministry. We're not going to get to the fleece part. That comes a little later. We're going to be in the beginning part of that. And just go to verse 1 of chapter 6 because we see the stage set. And the stage of Israel's history at this point and what is going on in the big picture is that Israel is in this pattern of sin, judgment, repentance, and restoration. And our students have been learning that. And if you went up on the third floor, you'd probably still see that drawn on a whiteboard for them as they've been unpacking that in their study together. But there is this pattern in Israel's history of sin, judgment, repentance, and then restoration. And they just kind of work themselves around that wheel. And quite frankly, the book of Judges is one of the most difficult books of the Bible to read. If you're doing the Bible in a year, and if, maybe if it's chronological, you're probably either getting close to Judges, or you might have already gotten through it, um, but it is a hard book. The book of Judges is a bloody book. The book of Judges is a book that reveals just the seriousness of sin. And we see some of that captured for us in the beginning of chapter 6, before the Lord has a conversation With Gideon, and the writer tells us that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the and God gave them, or the Lord gave them, into the hand of Midian seven years. So sin, judgment. You see the first two aspects of that cycle. Gideon's the part of the restoration, where they will repent, and then he's part of the restoration. So what happened is that the hand of Midian, verse 2, overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. Just think of that for a moment. The oppression was so bad that they fled to the mountains and made themselves caves to live in. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour their produce as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel. And no sheep or no ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. It's a pretty bleak picture. It's a pretty bleak picture. They came because the Lord sent them. It was judgment for Israel's sin. But in verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat underneath a terebinth tree. 
And Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. You don't beat wheat where you press grapes normally. But you do so when you're trying to not be found beating wheat. Because wheat's food. And so you do so in a place that's perhaps inconspicuous so that the Midianites and the Amalekites don't come and take your wheat. The Lord comes to have this conversation with Gideon. I know we talked several weeks ago about how when you see in the Old Testament the angel of the Lord mentioned, it's a pre-incarnate appearing of Jesus. Judges 6 is one of the passages used to support that conclusion. And if you read Judges 6 in, in just carefully, you'd see that the, the difference between the angel of the Lord and the Lord is almost non-existent in regards to who is speaking to Gideon. It runs back, the writer runs back, back and forth, almost synonymously between the two. But God comes, Jesus comes to have this conversation with Gideon, and in verse 12, the angel of the Lord, I believe that is Jesus, appeared to Gideon and said, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our father recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of of Midian, Gideon's question is, if God is with us, why are all these bad things happening? Maybe to say it another way, where are you right now, God? You ever found yourself asking that question? You might know he's there intellectually, but perhaps the experience or maybe the subjective calm and peace and assurance that's there makes you wonder. God, where are you? It's a question Gideon asks. Well, Jesus gives him some instructions and just says, Go in this might of yours, verse 14, and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And then Gideon says, Why me? I'm the smallest and the weakest. In my father's house. And my father's house is the weakest among all the houses. Why are you picking me? And in verse 16, the Lord said to him, I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And then Gideon says what probably all of us would say. Perhaps some of us have said it before. God, we need a sign. Like, that's great. I know we're having this conversation right now, but we need something else. And so the Lord gives him instructions. And we're going to jump forward a few verses. But Gideon prepares some food and he sets it on a rock. And the angel of the Lord touches the food with his staff. And the food completely is consumed. And then in the end of verse 21, the angel of the Lord vanished from Gideon's sight. Then Gideon perceived, verse 22, that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, see, here's what he says, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But in verse 23, the angel of the Lord Jesus, he's back. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Shalom. Do not fear, you shall not die. 
Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. Technically speaking, Yahweh Shalom is not a name of God so much as it is a place. And that is actually this really interesting characteristic of the next three or two names we'll look at over the next two weeks. Three, including this week, is that they're all altars. Moses, Abraham, and Gideon all say these, what we call names of God, in naming altars where God met and provided for them in a significant way. The Lord is peace is the name that Gideon gives to this altar because of who God is. Gideon perceived, verse 23, that the Lord is a Lord of peace. And he calls the altar just that. And then the Lord gives him instructions on how to tear down the altars of Baal and how to cut up the Asherah poles which, have been, which would have been erected around town and how to use the wood from the pole to burn the bull that he was going to put onto the altar. And he gives him all of these instructions and Gideon goes and does it. And then he gives him some more and then we get to the fleece. And we see, however, in these few verses in Judges, a characteristic of God revealed, an action of God revealed. He's a God of peace. The word shalom, generally the root word behind, behind the, the, this word means completion, fulfillment. It's a state of wholeness. It's a state of unity. There's a, there's a completeness there. It can be used to refer to restored relationships. Perhaps big picture, it's just it's what you have when things are right. It's what you have when things are right. And Jesus had a few things to say about peace, and they were significant. And in the upper room with his disciples, just hours before he's going to be arrested, Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. It's significant here that there is a peace the world has to offer and there's a peace that Jesus has to offer, and they're not the same peace. Jesus' peace is different. Oftentimes, our world is just going to define the word peace as the absence of conflict. But that doesn't always mean that there's wholeness or that there's unity. It might just mean that there's no conflict. And conversely, sometimes biblical peace actually brings conflict when you try to pursue it. We'll try to step into that and unpack some of that and make sense of that. But there's a peace the world has to offer and there's a peace that is offered by the God of peace. John 16, Jesus said this and continuing, I have said these things to you, so everything that he's been teaching them since John 13 in the upper room forward, that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have tribulation. Some of your translations are going to say trouble. Some might say trial. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So if we just define peace as the absence of conflict, we actually have fallen short of what Jesus wants to offer us. Because in this world, you're going to have trial. You're going to have trouble. 
You're going to experience tribulation. But Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. Peace, quite frankly, is simple in its foundation, and it's really challenging in its application. Peace is simple in its foundation, challenging in its application. The foundation of peace is obedience to God. It's obedience to His Word. First and foremost, it's a conviction that just starts and ends with, I'm going to go with what the Word says. I'm going to try to learn what the Word says, and I'm going to do my best to walk in the power of the Spirit to obey what the Word says. Peace begins there as its foundation. It begins there in its acknowledgement that we, we need a Savior, and His name is Jesus. I mean, that, that's, that's the main aspect that the Word has come to communicate, that God intends to reveal to us in His Word, that In and of ourselves, we are separated from Him. And we need a Savior to reconcile us. And so first and foremost, the foundation of peace begins with trusting in Jesus Christ. And then it works out of that to obey and follow His Word. And so to that end, if you are excusing sin in your own life, Or perhaps sin in the lives of others that you know. You do not have biblical peace. You have perhaps the cheap substitute that the world offers. So what I want to do is I want to try to unpack with you what I think the scriptures reveal to us about biblical peace. Its foundation is simple. Its application is really actually quite challenging, but it begins with an acknowledgement, uh, an acknowledgement that we need a Savior. And biblical peace begins with actually an eternal peace. Before it ever gets to what our hands do and what our minds think and what our actions are, it begins with reconciliation to God. And Christ has purchased and secured eternal peace For us, on our behalf, by his death on the cross. Paul writes in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Eternal peace begins with recognizing that without Christ, you're actually an enemy of God. There is no peace between you and God. And that it's only through faith in Jesus Christ and being justified by that faith that you actually step in to have peace with God. And there is an eternal peace offered that leads to hope that extends beyond the grave. Colossians 1, 19 and 20, Paul there writes, For in Him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Jesus To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. As we got to the tail end of 1 Corinthians, we we looked at what Paul writes there in chapter 15 about the future peace that will exist where there will no longer be death 
there will no longer be any enemies. There will be complete peace because of the victory that Jesus will bring. That victory was purchased and paid for on the cross. Peace in its application begins with the recognition that only in Christ do we actually have peace with God. Christ provides eternal peace for those who trust in him. Christ provides circumstantial peace for those who trust and obey in him. Eternal peace is secure. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ and you have placed your faith and trust in him for salvation, your eternal peace is secure. Circumstantial peace can come and go. And oftentimes does so dependent on our obedience and faith. Some of you will recognize these words that come from an old hymn, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. This gets after this circumstantial peace. And circumstantial peace, it's a Holy Spirit wrought fruit. That's the result of walking with the Spirit. Reading and obeying God's word. And so there's peace to be had in your marriage if you trust and obey. There's peace to be had in your parenting if you trust and obey. There's peace to be had in decision making if you trust and obey. And it's not that we know every detail that there is to know about a decision that we might need to make. But I know Carrie and I have stood on the front side of decisions wondering, praying about, asking ourselves, should we, should we step? Should we pull the trigger? Should we make this choice? And there's peace to be found there. Christ provides circumstantial peace for those who will trust and obey. He provides peace for a church as it trusts and obeys. He provides peace in the midst of the storm as we trust and obey. I don't really know how to explain that one other than there's a, there's a subjective calm that I know that Carrie and I have experienced before in the midst of the storm. There's just an experience. There's a peace there. Despite just kind of the raging life that happens to be surrounding us in the moment, there's just a calm. And I know different times when we've walked through different storms, we've kind of balanced each other out where she'll have a freak out moment and I'll be like, hang on, God still got this. And then it's like 10 minutes later, I'm having the freak out moment and she's going, hang on, God still got this. 
This circumstantial piece isn't the ability to see every detail that there is to be seen. It's not, it's not a guarantee that even the end result of whatever it is that we're walking through will be one that we define as favorable, that would even lead to our happiness. But it's the reality that as we seek to follow the Lord, as we seek to walk in His Word and love well and obey what He's revealed to us, there's a peace. A peace that passes all understanding. Can't explain it. There's been moments when we've experienced it. Christ provides this for those who will trust and obey. But even here, we need to be careful that we don't just define peace as the absence of difficulty or the absence of conflict or the absence of trial or trouble. Paul himself said in Philippians 4, writing from jail, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Peace becomes very closely connected to contentment as well. Certainly in the midst of the trial. Paul writing from jail finds himself content in his circumstances because of the peace of God that passes all understanding. And there's a circumstantial peace that Christ provides for those who will trust and obey in him. We're never going to go wrong obeying what God's word says. Even if it comes at high personal cost to us. It happened again this morning in our Sunday school class where Kevin's talking about something that just fits so perfectly with what I'm going <laughs> to be preaching on. And his, his, his lesson involved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. There's a peace in that fire because they trusted and obeyed. And I love what they said to Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, king. We believe that God can save us from the fire. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. Christ provides circumstantial peace for those who trust and obey in him. Perhaps the more challenging part of peace is our call to be peacemakers. And you and I are commanded to be peacemakers. We read in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. One of the characteristics of those who are the sons and daughters of God is that they seek to make peace. We are commanded to be peacemakers. So how do we do that? It begins with a humble acknowledgement of our need for Christ. And this theme, this word of humility is going to need to be worked and woven throughout all four of these aspects we'll look at when it comes to you and I being commanded to be peacemakers. Because if we lose humility in the next three, we've gotten off track. 
If we don't begin with humility, we're not even close. Being a peacemaker begins with our humble acknowledgement of our need for Christ. This, this, this pulls in like what Paul meant in Ephesians 4. I think it's verse 29. So, As you have been forgiven, forgive others. See, there's a commandment that to, to the degree that your sinfulness has been covered by Christ, you're to extend that same forgiveness to others. It begins with a humble acknowledgement of our need for Christ. Before peacemaking ever becomes an action, it is first an attitude. And that attitude is an attitude of humility. But if not for grace, the humble say. Being a peacemaker involves ignoring external distinctions. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall in his flesh, or has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul's writing to Jews and Gentiles here. He's writing to people who were given the Old Testament, who were given the law, who were given the sacrificial system, who were given a temple. They were given a place to have access with God. And he's writing also to people that thumbed their nose at God and shook their fist at God and didn't want anything to do with God. And Paul's saying, look, in Christ, you're one. Those distinctions don't run any deeper. They're ethnic they're cultural, they're social, they're political, they're religious, and they don't run any deeper. And in Christ, there's unity. He himself is our peace. Being a peacemaker involves ignoring external distinctions. We ignore race in terms of privilege and status. We ignore gender distinctions in terms of value. We don't elevate certain spiritual gifts above others. We put a check on how passionately we want our music preferences to be held. We're even gracious in terms of clothing choices. Now there's a line on those things. But if you're fully convinced that you need to wear a suit on Sunday mornings, yes and amen. Go right ahead. But if you're convinced that you don't need to wear a suit on Sunday mornings, that's perfectly okay as well. It's an external distinction. Peacemakers ignore external distinctions. You major on the majors, you minor on the minors. And there, there may be differences of conviction as to what we should wear when we gather. It's probably not as deep now as it might have been years ago, or maybe I'm just ignorant of it. I fully imagine that there was a time in our church where the expectation was suit and tie. And it probably came with some unfavored opinions if it wasn't followed. But those are external distinctions. Peacemakers ignore external distinctions. 
Peacemakers stand for truth. Christ commands us to be peacemakers by standing for truth. There is no wholeness. There is no unity. There is no restoration if truth has been compromised. And here's one of the distinctions that we need to make between peace being the absence of just conflict and peace being wholeness. Let me give you the example in, in just terms of, of my house. If my kids want ice cream for dinner tonight and I say no and they pitch a fit, if I'm just trying to go for the absence of conflict, I give in. Yeah, you can have ice cream. And I just appease them. I found a way to keep the peace. But that's different and it's distinct from being a peacemaker that is not going to compromise in truth. And in my house, you don't just eat ice cream for dinner. So peace isn't just the absence of conflict. It's rather wholeness. And you'll never experience wholeness if you've compromised truth. Now, the goal of standing on truth is never to sever the relationship. That's important. And this is where humility is going to be really, really critical for us. The goal of standing on and for truth is never to sever the relationship. It's always for fellowship. Fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. So the one who is not walking in truth or not making decisions that are in line with what the scriptures say, they don't have fellowship with God. There's a brokenness, something, something short-circuiting in their relationship with God. And to be a peacemaker, to step into that is an invitation to them to have that fellowship restored, to have wholeness restored. And the same is true with you and I Relationally, the goal of standing for truth is never to sever the relationship. It's always, always for fellowship. And the hardest part in that is humility. The hardest part in that is to do those things humbly. couple of the different ways that we stand for truth. First, we stand against falsehood. That's kind of the inferred response. We stand against falsehood. There can be no spirit-wrought peace when false teachers are allowed to continue teaching and influencing. And there comes times when leaders and even Congregational members have to stand against falsehood. But those moments can bring conflict, actually. So we can't just, again, we can't define peace as just the mere absence of conflict. It's something far more significant than that. It's wholeness. And there will be no wholeness. There will be no spirit-wrought peace if truth is compromised. So we, we stand against falsehood in humility and in love. And perhaps just as difficult, maybe if not more so, is standing against sinful choices. 
Scripture gives us some examples of how we're to interact with those who are believers and those who are unbelievers, who are walking openly in blatant sin and unrepentance before the Lord. They come from 1 Corinthians. We thought about them months ago, but I want to remind you of them. And I, I, I just want to say, I, I think in some ways the example perhaps is the extreme that Paul paints. But it's also significant. So he begins with unbelievers in 1 Corinthians 5. And he tells us what our response and what our attitude against unbelievers should be. And it's that of one of compassion. So we stand for truth in relationship to unbelievers with compassion. In verses 9 and 10, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. The example that Jesus sets command of Paul, the explanation he gives in 2 Corinthians is that we are to have compassion towards unbelievers. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They just don't know truth. So let me, let me just try to make this as real as possible. Somebody who is fully convinced that aborting babies is what should happen has been blinded by the God of this world to be fully convinced that aborting babies is what should happen. They don't know different. Because the God of this world, whose name is Satan, who wants nothing more than sin and death and sorrow to prevail and pervade, has convinced them of that, and he has blinded their eyes to truth. So you and I engaging them by just yelling probably doesn't help one bit. Rather, we're to have compassion. They've been duped, the scriptures tell us. We're to have compassion. To have compassion towards those who are unbelievers, who are just caught in a lifestyle of sin, regardless of what that lifestyle might be. And Paul gives a lot of different things that can fit that bill. But he has a few things to say about how we stand for truth regarding the relationship we have with believers. And there, he tells us we need to be firm. Now again, perhaps this is the extreme and I want to be careful here to distinguish and make a difference and a distinction between somebody who's, who's struggling, as we all do, to walk in obedience before the Lord. And somebody who's just saying, I don't give two cents what the scriptures say. I'm going to do my own thing. Alright, there's a distinction to be made there. Paul's talking about the I don't give two cents people here in verse 11. And he says, look, you, you be firm. I'm writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. So he's, he or she is saying, yes, I've trusted in Jesus Christ, but I don't give two cents 
about what the scriptures have to say. If he or she is guilty of, that he goes on to list those things. He says, don't even eat with such a one. There's no peace there. There's no wholeness there. For that individual to say, yes, I know Jesus, I love Jesus, I've trusted in Jesus for my salvation, but I don't have any care in the world what Jesus has to say, and I'm just going to do my own thing, and I'm going to thumb my nose at him and shake my fist at him. Paul says, the church, this is not leaders in the church, this is the church. It needs to be firm. In humility, in love, all of those things, but there is not peace when open unrepentance is allowed to just exist. You don't have peace. You might have the absence of conflict. You don't have biblical peace. Biblical peace is wholeness. It's unity. It's fellowship that's in and unhindered by sin. And you and I are commanded to be peacemakers by standing for truth. To do that with humility is hard. We're probably never going to do it perfectly, but we're called to it. Uh, Lastly, we're commanded to be peacemakers by loving well when it's hard. I told you, I think there's a distinction in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 11 between the person who struggles, as we all do, to, to walk with the Lord in obedient faithfulness day after day. And the person who's just thumbing their nose at God and shaking their fist at him. And I don't give two cents about what he has to say, all that. This last idea of loving well when it's hard pulls in what we do with each other as we're actively seeking to follow the Lord. As we're as we're aiming for faithful obedience, but doing it imperfectly. All of us will do it imperfectly. And we love well when it's hard. Peter tells us the end of all things is at hand. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Part of being a peacemaker is not choosing every time you sinned against. To make that a mountainous occurrence. Sometimes, as peacemakers, we just love well. and We cover a multitude of sins. Now, there's a balance there, so don't, I, don't want, I don't want you to hear me say that we don't stand for what's right. But sometimes, we just need to forgive. We just need to love well. We're commanded to be peacemakers. We do so by humbly recognizing our need for Christ by standing for truth in love, by loving well when it's hard, by ignoring external distinctions, 
And here's what we see. That through Christ, we have eternal peace. In Christ, we can have circumstantial peace. And because of Christ, we are commanded to be peacemakers. Because he's the Lord of peace. He's Yahweh Shalom. And this is who he is, and this is his character, and this is what he calls his people to. And it's what he extends to us. And asks us to believe in faith that we might have that eternal peace with him. And asks us to walk in faith that we might have that circumstantial peace in the midst of whatever the trial or storm or relationship that it is. But then he calls us to be peacemakers. To be his ambassadors of peace. Because he's the God of peace. Let's pray. Well, God, those, those things are pretty easy to put on a slide, project on a screen, and it's an entirely different thing to live that out. So God, we need your grace to work in us your fruit that we might be the peacemakers that you've called us to be. That we might trust in you in the midst of the storm and the trial and the relationship that, that walking in obedience what we need to do regardless of how hard it is. And God, we thank you for the eternal peace that we have with you because of what Jesus has done for us. That in the gospel you provided for us what was required of us but could not be supplied by us. And it was done by your son. And he is our peace. In his good name we pray. Amen.